Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Jen Saxton, founder and CEO of Tot Squad. Tot Squad's mission is to help parents' lives easier by connecting them with the experts that they need virtually and in person. What people don't know is this is actually the second version of Tot Squad because you actually sold the company already, uh, but you got to keep the name and go ahead and use it to be able to build a tech company on top of it using the same name, so we'll, we'll dig into that. Uh, you've made partnerships with some of the biggest, largest box, big box stores in the country, so we can talk a little bit about that, and you've been featured everywhere. Wall Street Journal, CNBC, Entrepreneur Magazine, Inc., everywhere, Fast Company. So uh, super, super excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So uh, we have a ton to learn from you, uh, but this is where I'd love to start, is you started Tot Squad, kind of, let's say, Tot Squad OG, the first version <laughs> of it, and you have... Um, kind of an interesting story through all of this. Walk us through a little bit about kind of how you came up with the idea and what you did to really find product market fit and how it's, and then we can start to dig into like how it's changed and pivoted and done yeah, all that. Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess uh, I wrote the business plan for my first company while I was getting my MBA at Kellogg. Um, and I was single and 25, but really passionate about work-life balance. Um, as uh, a millennial. In fact, now they call us geriatric millennials um, <laughs> since I was born in 1982. I think I'm there I'm, as I'm well. turning 40 in a couple of weeks. Um, and so uh, I think this generation has all been um, really interested in work-life balance. And so I was trying to find business ideas that would help millennials manage work-life balance as they became parents. Um, and so I won the business plan competition at Kellogg and went out and started this new business, which was a cleaning service for strollers and car seats. Um, and, you know, I was just, you know, driving a van around Los Angeles, um, you know, with my MBA as the CEO of this company, like cleaning poop and vomit for a while. So it was really glamorous post MBA lifestyle. <laughs> So, so chief janitor took on a whole new meeting. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I often wow. will joke now that like, it was a great lesson, but it's very humbling, obviously, but to have done every job in the company. Um, so it, you know, it helps you be a, a better leader when you've done all the jobs. So you're, so talk us a little bit about the problem. Is it, did you have kids no, at the time? No. Um, so no kids, and now you're getting into the baby world with no yeah. kids, which is a little rare. I thought it was like my secret sauce for a long time um, that I didn't have any kids because I could be like all in on my startup, and, and my startup was my baby. Right. But I would be at these like Tuesday night working mom meetups, and they're like, who's this single chick with no kids <laughs> out here just like <laughs> hustling? Um, and. And it's funny because my big insight was after I became a mom, I have a, a four-year-old and a one-year-old now, and I realized that I had much bigger problems as a new mom than just a dirty stroller or car seat. Um, and that was when I decided to sell that company and start my new one, which is more like an Angie's List type of platform or marketplace where instead of handymen and plumbers and roofers, we have lactation consultants and night nannies and car seat installers and baby proofers and all the different kind of service professionals that you need as a newer expecting mom. Um, and, and, you know, we can talk a little bit about my sales channels um, in both companies, but largely has been kind of a B to B to C model where we're selling through big partners, big retailers to reach consumers. 
So let's talk a little bit about the beginning, and then we'll, we'll kind of go through the story. So you're driving around uh, all of L.A., cleaning strollers, cleaning car seats. Like, wh why that? Like, how did you figure out, like, hey, I have this problem, or people have this problem, one of a million different things as a parent. And how did you figure out, like, hey, I need to just kind of start doing whatever I can, hand-to-hand -hand combat, totally. people call it sometimes, to, to figure out if this is real or right. not. Right. So, like, do I have a business? Yeah, I mean, while I was in business school, uh, I mean, I really took advantage of my classes and my classmates. Um, I always joke that, like, I had 40 of my classmates who worked on my business plan in my various classes, and it would have cost me millions of dollars to hire that many McKinsey consultants in the real world. Um, yeah. so, so I had a lot of really smart people, and we started with a list, a, a brainstorm list that I had of, like, 40 different concepts and ideas. Um, and, like, some of them, thank God, I didn't do. I remember one of them at the time was, like, a... a People used to use portable DVD players. They like folded in half. This is pre-iPad, right? Yeah, I had <laughs> yeah. one of those. I, I like, had one of those. It was great. It was a one. screen. Yeah. What if you could have yeah, a portable DVD player that like clipped on to your stroller or your high chair at the restaurant or whatever, so that like kids could be entertained? Um, and like you know, Apple, I guess, solved that problem very shortly thereafter. So like, thank God that wasn't the idea we picked. But um, this, you know, I would tell everybody, I kind of have this thesis that I think millennials care a lot about work-life balance. And as we're starting to have kids, I think this is going to balloon. And like, what are things that are like, you know, what are problems for the moms? What's causing them frustration and stress? And this one mom told me my kid keeps throwing up in the car seat. And every time I have to take the whole thing apart, it takes me hours. You can't put it in the dryer. I live in Chicago. It takes 48 hours for the thing to dry. And the whole time I can't go anywhere because I have no car seat. And then I have to go to the fire station and have somebody help me reassemble it and put it back in my car correctly. Um, and it just became like a massive time suck for somebody whose kid was car sick frequently. Um, and so I just started digging in on that and realized like there was nobody else out there offering a service like this. And when I would pitch it to other moms, every single one of them was like, oh my God, yes, I want that. I would love that service. That would be amazing. Um, and, you know, of course, it took a lot more experimentation to figure out, like, the business model of, like, how do we deliver that? When I was first uh, got the van here in L.A., I was driving around to parks, just trying to, like, pass out flyers and see if people would, like, let me use a generator on the side of the park and clean their gear while they were playing. Um, and that wasn't super practical because of permitting and all sorts of other stuff. Um, and sure. I eventually kind of stumbled into baby boutiques um, and the idea that I could offer like a day of free stroller cleanings at their store would really help them drive foot traffic as, as things were really starting to shift to online shopping um, and, and then create a captive audience because like while we had their stroller, the moms couldn't go anywhere. Like, you know, we had their car seat. They would like be trapped in the store for 30 to 60 minutes to shop. And I yeah. was able to collect a lot of great data. Um, I was really smart about doing exit surveys. So I could go back to the store and say, hey, I'm not paying you anything. I'm, you're, you're not getting a cut of my sales. Because if you actually look at this, my customer spent on average $85 in your store today. Um, this X percent of them hadn't been to one of your stores in this many months or whatever. So like I got new foot traffic, incremental revenue, and they actually spent on average more inside your store than they did on my service. So I was able to kind of like flip it into a win-win and then, and then start scaling the business yeah. model from there. That's interesting. So, I mean, one the big takeaway there is you're actually helping other other businesses with their own business. Mm -hmm. I mean, because because of this, you come in win-win partnership. Not only do you get more customers, but the customers are now spending more. But it's interesting. So, you actually track mm -hmm. 
because they probably are not tracking. No. I mean, we don't have to get into like retail technology. Today. No, they're not Maybe tracking. Day, but... <laughs> well, especially my first partners were <laughs> like not... boutiques, you yeah. know, like one-off mom and pop. Yeah, shops. tiny little businesses. Yeah. And so any any new customer is is quite meaningful. A hundred percent. And you know, eventually we started going to like Whole Foods and other locations where like mom was already going to be in the store for an hour, so that was great for her to be able to multitask. Um, and, and Whole Foods had tons of space on their front patios. And you know, then like the Nordstroms of the world started calling me, uh, which was great. And, and looking for kind of the retailtainment and the ways to drive the foot traffic into the store. Um, I mean, I remember doing this pilot with Nordstrom at some point in time and they had comps, like I guess, you know, if you compare a certain day versus a, a day in the store a year earlier, of like 30 to 40% higher sales on the days when they would do events with Tot Squad and, and offer free stroller cleanings just to get people in the store. Wow. So it paid for itself. Like these retailers were really seeing the benefit, which, you know, made it easier to grow and scale. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you all of a sudden you're looking at it and saying, hey, I got this little idea, talking to a bunch of little boutiques. And you go from little boutiques to bigger boutiques to bigger stores, bigger box stores, and then, you know, the whole foods of the world people are there for hours and hours and hours they have food and drinks and mm -hmm. uh, you know that you can consume there plus your own grocery shopping and now all of a sudden they have all these additional uh, services mm -hmm. like a tot squad makes it even more likely that they're gonna spend more money not only just on tot squad but also on all their other totally. services so it really seems like you kind of lashed on to this like win-win business model of hey, I'm gonna go after, number one, anyone who has my same ideal customer. Mm -hmm. So really being able to look at it that way, finding those channels and saying, okay, where are they going to spend the most amount of time? My mom, my one with kids mm -hmm. that have you know specific types of requirements that are gonna probably take a little bit of time, grocery shopping, maybe the library, these boutiques, mm -hmm. these types of things started to get all this traction people started calling you then what happened Talk yeah what, I guess, what's kind of that well, next what happened, step? so what was great about kind of going to these different locations as like a pop-up kind of like you would see food trucks that are popping up at different locations is you can consolidate local demand right um versus if you do a house call model right we'd be driving spending half the day in traffic in la um and so being able to consolidate local demand was great, but then like the scheduling got more and more complex. It was like, okay, LA is a huge area. I'd have like one hourly worker or employee like trying to drive two, three hours a day to get to the site. Um, and then like w we would have randomly chosen a Tuesday, not knowing that in that area there was some other conflicting event on Tuesday. Or you know what I mean? So the scheduling was harder and harder, but um, trying to come up with more ways to kind of like optimize that was great. But then I was like, I can't keep hiring hourly workers um, to do this job. I mean, it was a dirty job, right? It's literally cleaning poop and vomit out of people's stuff. Um, and like dirty raisins, like, I mean, you have a kid, you know, it's like disgusting. <laughs> um, and it wasn't like I could hire people that had done this job before. Like it didn't exist. I innovated this category. I, I like made it up. Right. So you can't like hire somebody who's got experience as a stroller cleaner. So you're like kind of hiring people that are like aspiring actresses or like, you know, they're like looking for other jobs yeah, and they're just like, this is like gig economy. Totally. Um, but yeah. it's kind of specialized. You have to train them. You want to keep them. But I, I started trying to think about like other models for scaling. Um, and at some point I had opened locations in New York City to kind of understand the customer there and winter weather. Um, and they had much more of a doorman dry cleaner model where like they would leave their stroller downstairs and we would like use a courier to pick it up, clean it at an offsite facility and send it back. So, you know, we were kind of really experimenting with business models, but that's when I started to think about franchising um, as an avenue to scale because 
the franchisees would then be responsible for hiring and managing their own hourly workers versus me trying to manage hourly workers all over the country when, like, you know, I'm, I'm just here in L.A. So It's tough, yeah. No, that's interesting because, uh, you know, franchises, it was... Uh, when when we were younger, I, I feel like it was much more of this like common business practice where people were like, "Oh, let's franchise, franchise, franchise," and nowadays you don't hear it as much. Maybe with like sandwich shops or ice cream stores and retail, but you don't really see it in any kind of business model this way. What other types of things were, had you already had tried? Because to go from an LA into New York and different cities, I mean, you're starting to really stretch yourself thin just. For, for better oh than anything God. else, just geographically, time zones, conversations. I, like, h- how did you think, like, hey, I'm going to try it all these places and then get to franchising? Yeah. Like, walk us through kind of how you I got I mean, there. I had taken a franchising class while I was at Kellogg from the, like, chief franchising officer at McDonald's. So I kind of, and, and my mom also owned a franchise when I was growing up um, for, like, a computer, it was called Computer Moms. And she would, like, literally go to people's right. houses and, like, teach them how to use AOL and Microsoft Word and stuff. You can go to my place. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, so I was familiar with franchising, and um, I, I do think I, I think there's a statistic. I'm probably going to get this wrong, but like franchises represent like 15% of the American GDP or something. Like they are a huge part of our economy. Um, and I became really active in the franchising association, and I became a certified franchise executive through this process, actually, um, which was a really cool thing just professionally to learn more about that business model, because I think it's not considered sexy. It was really hard for me to fundraise as a startup in the franchising space. Like, in franchising, there's a lot of money for companies that have already got, like, 10 or 100 locations. Like, there's lots of private equity companies that want to come in and give you money because franchising generates these, like, recurring royalties. Um, but yeah. then tech startup investors like wouldn't touch me. They're like, this is not technology. People would come back to me and be like, can you build it like a car wash? Like, you know, you could just like run the strollers through and they like come out the other side and it's like technology. <laughs> I'm like 0% chance of that. Yeah. That is like not possible. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, not so, so yeah, so franchising, I, I don't know that it was my only choice, but like it started to feel like it was my only choice. Um, and so you know, there were kind of a couple of elements. It's like, first you have to sell the franchises and then you have to teach the franchisees how to sell all of the local partnerships. And then you have to teach the franchisees and their hourly workers how to sell the services because so much of the business was generated through that customer experience of, of repeat business and like having a great experience and then asking them to refer people to you. And, and so I think sales yeah. was like so crucial to that, but it's like starting to become more and more layers removed from me. You know, when it was me driving the van and cleaning the stuff, I had five star reviews all the time. Like people loved me. I was chatty. I was smart. I was, you know, I was doing a good job. Um, I was conscientious. Um, but, but the more and more removed from me, the service got the harder it was to maintain that level of quality. Um, and that high level of, of referrals and reviews. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that. Cause uh, one one thing that that we've always discussed a lot is this like transition from founder led sales into the next group mm-hmm. of people, right? That initial uh, um, initial group of people who can really take your company to the next level with you as leadership, and there is a much much longer timeline that that happens than anybody ever right. wants it to happen. But there's a lot of there's a lot of strategy, there's a lot of documentation, there's a lot of things, mental models that you have to go through in order to figure out who to hire, not even, not even just sales, but ops and marketing and all these different things. Like, how did you figure out 
what to do when and who to hire? Like, how did you kind of figure out those puzzle pieces? Well, I definitely started with the franchise sales, like trying to do it myself. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I got really close, you know, I like found one and, and I was feeling good about it. Um, and then I did actually sell one, um, on my own, which was exciting. But then I was like, I, th I started learning more about the franchise industry and like, they have very specific best practices, I guess, or like processes. Because if you think about the typical person who buys a franchise, they're entrepreneurial, but they're not necessarily an entrepreneur, which is why they're buying like a business in a box. Like they want to be their own boss. They want to be a business owner, but they don't necessarily want to like come up with all the marketing ideas or like research point of sale systems and like, you know what I mean? Do everything from, from soup to nuts. And so finding that specific niche of person and then walking them through this process to get them excited about it until the point where they like are going to write you a big check, right? I think our franchise upfront fees were like twenty five to $50,000. So it was like a big sell to like an, an individual person who's going to like buy themselves a job. Um, so kind of learning about those different processes led me to believe that I needed to hire outside sales um, reps. I mean, I could have also tried to hire that person internally, but I think that was just riskier versus going with kind of these agencies where like all they do is franchise sales. So that was kind of my next step. But I have, I have some like PTSD from that experience. <laughs> Tell me um, if you're okay digging yeah, into yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, it's been so many years at this point. Um, I'm not in touch with these people anymore, but I won't say their names anyway. Uh, but do yeah. I think that, no, no names. yeah, like in trying to hire salespeople, which I know you talk a lot about on this podcast. Um, I found that salespeople were like trying to use their sales tactics on me. <laughs> like, like there was, um, a time where I was trying to negotiate the price and they just threatened to walk. Um, or, you know, and they're like, well, we don't need your business. Like, yeah. you know, like, are you hiring us or are you not hiring yeah. us? Um, or, or, you know, I don't know. Like, I just felt like they were using their sales juju on me in a way I did not like. I knew that I was being sold to. Um, and it's like, dang, I know I want that skill set. Like, they're clearly so good at this. This is why I want to hire them, because I need them to do this to other people, but I don't like it right. when they're doing yeah. it to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so did you did you actually work yeah. with these companies, or did you, okay, and did you continue to work with them, or no. did you start to, <laughs> what, what, what was the, I mean, uh, outsource sales or outside of your company type selling, if you're going to hire someone else to sell, it's challenging. There's a whole group of things that you got to do and learn. What, what were some of those big key takeaways that you were like, well, maybe this is not really. Yeah. Me. I mean, I think that one, um, you know, there's a good amount of onboarding to like get somebody really immersed in your business and your culture so that they can like represent that and sell that out. Um, and, and, and so like uh, that took longer than I expected it to. Um, or maybe it was just not something I had really accounted for in my mental math of like how quickly I expected these salespeople to be able to like hit the ground and start running. And I had a combo of like a, a monthly retainer fee and then they had much larger upsides and commissions and things. Um, but even as like a startup that was struggling to fundraise, that was like trying to start selling these franchises so that I could start to get some sense of scale, um, it was a big investment for me to bring on this professional agency. And I think that like one of my big lessons as just an entrepreneur overall, like over the last 13 years between my two companies has been working with my executive coach to identify what are my strengths 
And what are the things that I am either like not passionate about or not good at that I can hire other people to help me with? And I think I kind of like messed that up initially in this outsourcing of the sales part because it turned out what I really needed help with was lead gen. Like I needed qualified leads, people who were interested in buying a franchise or maybe they weren't specifically looking to buy a franchise, but they were like so excited and passionate about my business that they were considering buying a franchise versus like yeah. starting it on their own. Um, so finding qualified leads is a different job from like, okay, I've got a warm lead. Now I need to get them excited and get them to write me the check, which turned out like, that's what I'm good at. The, I, that's the part I like and that's what I'm good at. And I hired people that were trying to do that part instead of do the other part that I wasn't as good at. And so I think that not only is, you know, using a, a coach or, you know, leadership training to identify your strengths, but like when it comes specifically to sales, it's like you have to break it down. Like sales is a big word. Like there's like 900,000 subcategories and things and specialties within sales. And so I don't think I did a good enough job at looking at the process of sales, like from start to finish to identify which pieces of that I needed to hire specialists or outsource. And so I did it wrong. Um, and so ultimately, I mean, I felt like it was a mistake that cost me, I don't know, 50, a hundred thousand dollars. It was like a lot of money at the time. At the time oh, I was like yeah. very stressed about the amount of money I spent on these guys that did not end up working out for me. Um, and, and it, it was very painful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a great coach is, is worth their weight mm -hmm. in gold to be able to, to look at it and say, you know, let's, let's break this apart. And it could be sales. It could be marketing. It could be operations. It could really be any part of your business. And I know that. Uh, as as being a coach, and I yeah. do a lot of this as well, is I can see entrepreneurs struggle to kind of part ways with that initial be like, do I really need a coach? Like, I can figure this out. Like, I'm a go-getter. Like, I'm, I can figure all of this out on my own. And then you do it, and then you talk to that one person, and they were like, yeah, I could have saved you a lot of time, yeah. a lot of energy, a lot of money. And it's, it's, it's something that it's interesting because – once you go through it, then you realize, you know what? I don't know it all. There's no reason for me to try to figure it out all. I should just know my strengths and hire hire for them. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, even if it means paying yourself less to be able to like hire for those things that are taking energy from you, I think that, you know, being an entrepreneur is exhausting. It's long hours. It's, it's, it's a hard job. And if you are getting yeah. sucked into the weeds and the details of things that like drain your energy, that is like taking away the magic that you need to be able to like find product market fit and like get customers excited and like do the things that right. do give you energy. So we talked a little bit about a franchise model. We tried it. It's not working you just bail on the entire thing because of this one experience and go a different direction? Do you try additional franchise uh, channels and, and try to make it work? Like, yeah. what, what did you ultimately end up doing after this I one experience? I would say I kind of took a pause because what I realized was that uh, most people who wanted to buy a franchise, um, and, you know, I started talking to, like, specific franchise lead gen companies after it didn't work out with those sales guys, um, they wanted more history and financials and I was still too early stage to really have enough of that. And so it was like, I was trying to sell a big deal to babies are us and to buy Bye baby, um, which is owned by bed, bath and beyond. Um, and you know, bye bye babies, babies are us. May they rest in peace. Right. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe they'll come back one day soon, but those were the two yeah, big okay. box baby store chains at the time. Um, and I was starting to get some good traction with bye bye baby. And so I kind of thought, you know, if I can get a national partnership with bye bye baby, 
that will make selling the franchises really easy because they won't necessarily have to sell all of these local partnerships and get into their local regional Whole Foods chain or whatever. Because like, I'll just be like, hey, I've got every Bye Bye Baby. Here's 120 stores all over the country. Like you can start showing up yeah. at their store. Um, and really we started kind of pivoting into a in-store service center type of concept, kind of like the Geek Squad, where we would actually have like a more permanent or semi-permanent kind of build out inside of the store and people might have to drive farther, but like they kind of started to know where you were, right? If their kid threw up in the car seat yeah. and they were desperate, like they would drive farther to find you in an urgent situation. And so um, yeah. I, I was thinking like, I'm gonna get this Bye Bye Baby partnership going and then I'm gonna come back to the franchise sales and continue trying to scale that once we get through these pilots. Um, but like things went a little bit sideways with Bye Bye Baby on their technology side. Like, in, and this is one of my key insights that led me to my second business which was that these retailers, the big boxes, they know how to sell products and inventory. Like they're merchant organizations. They buy and sell physical goods. And they were really struggling with how to sell services. And their point of sale system wouldn't keep up with it. And so we just kind of ended up in this like crazy situation where we had opened service centers in 10 cities and 30 stores um, very quickly. They had asked us to start scaling really quickly. But like then they wouldn't market it because their point of sale system wouldn't actually let them check people out. And that kept getting delayed. And then I had my baby. I was like on maternity leave while we were opening all these stores. And that was when I had my new idea that like I wanted to help moms find sleep consultants and night nannies. And so we ended up shutting down all of the in-store service centers so that we could kind of like go in this new direction. Um, but I, I really quickly realized I could not run my services company and still manage the hourly workers in the bye-bye stores or whole food stores or wherever and go build this kind of like angie's list style marketplace um and so i decided to sell it and so i uh yeah i, I closed that transaction on march 12th of 2020 which i often describe as the wild wild west of days to be doing an m a transaction um, <laughs> absolutely so yeah that crazy. was uh, right right when COVID was just like... It was like... the same day that Disneyland shut down and I sold to a company in the travel industry who was like, their business was in free fall and collapsed that week. Um, so I can't believe wow. we got it done. It was it was truly a miracle. But <laughs> Wow. So it's interesting because you actually had this in-store business. So you were going to the boutiques, you were going to the Whole Foods and you were in these stores Maybe not the most permanent right. way. Right, more pop it, up each day with a tent. You found out that there was some demand there. You went the franchise model and said, "Hey, this seems to work, but not in the same mechanism that we're in currently. So let's go back, actually, into this in-store model, be become more permanent, and then use that as the platform to be able to scale from right. there. And so you're starting to scale into all of these different see all these different centers so your permanent locations inside yep. yes there is a point of sale issue that's going on but you were able to actually start to get into all these other stores how did you how were you able to scale that way from you know the shift away kind of back away from from franchise and now you're coming into this scale throughout all these stores that that has its own scale oh my gosh challenges. so yeah i was eight months pregnant with my first child um, and it was funny, you know, I'd been in the baby industry for eight years, never had a baby. We joked, I had the longest awaited baby in the baby industry. And I, w I had a board meeting and I was uh, basically emailing Bye Bye Baby saying, hey, like we've been doing this pilot in New York City, uh, which was like their top store. 
um, for the last six months. It's like we've quadrupled our revenue since it opened. Like we're doing really well, but like I know it's not. Uh, I think we had hoped to like 10x our revenue if Bye Bye had done the marketing right. that they were going to do if their point of sale system was working. But um, but hey, like how many? I, I got like before I go on a maternity leave. Like how many of these can we open in 2019? So that was like August of 2018. Um, and they said, well, how many could you do? And so my COO, Shauna, and I uh, looked at each other and were like, we could probably do two a month. So we could do 25 new store openings in 2019. And they came back and they said, we want 10 and we want them in the next 60 days. <laughs> and I was like having a baby in 30 days. So I was like, okay, so I need to like raise a series A, open in 10 new cities and deliver a child in the next 60 days. Like, this is like, oh, I totally got this. So, like, we did two of the three things. Um, we, I did deliver the child. Baby, baby, baby. Baby was one, check. Uh, and Shauna led the charge while I was, like, having a C-section recovery on painkillers and everything. And, and she, like, remotely hired all these people, flew them into L.A., had a whole week of training, um, and then sent them back to all these markets to go do grand opening events. Um, and as I came back from maternity leave, I started like flying out to some of those, but like we did not raise the money. And so this was kind of ultimately the downfall was that we spent all of our money to get them open on the hope that Bye Bye was going to come in with the marketing because their technology every month was a month away, right? It was just one of those creeping delays, like an airline where they keep telling you it's next month, next month, next month, or, you know, one more hour, one more hour, and it never comes. Um, to the point where we were just bleeding cash and, and, and couldn't, couldn't wait any longer. Um, so it is, it, they, they, when you talk about your point of sale system, is that something that you had agreed with them beforehand to say, hey, this is what's going to happen and they just never were able to? Yeah, it was kind work? of like a bundling of products and services. So like when you go to Ikea now and buy furniture, they offer you TaskRabbit services to come assemble it for you. Um, right. Or if you're buying a, a Samsung TV from Best Buy or Amazon, they offer you TV mounting, like TV installation services. And they will like dispatch somebody from Angie's List to your house to mount it on your wall. So we were kind of looking for the same thing. Like if somebody is walking out of the store with a car seat, the sales rep at the point of sale at Bye Bye Baby would say, would you like to add on the car seat installation service? Or if you're walking out of the store with a $2,000 stroller, which, you know, is crazy, but that's like what my first car cost. Um, <laughs> like strollers these days are crazy. Um, but you're walking out of the store with a $2,000 stroller and they're saying, hey, would you like a, a maintenance package? And you can come back once a quarter and we'll tune it up. We'll clean it up for you, like these service packages. And so I think there was a lot of interest in Bye Bye to like see the opportunity for those upsells. Um, for them to increase the basket size on those purchases. Um, but, but the technology just would not work. Um, and, and it was hard, right, to get like a giant corporation like Bed Bath & Beyond to prioritize this, which was more of like an experiment for them. Um, when, yeah. I mean, at the time they were still like blue screen technology in their stores, so. Oh yeah, I remember yeah. those days. So when you're, when you're growing all this and you know, you're you're kind of making a bet to say, hey, you guys are going to fix your technology integration issues. You're hiring all these people. You're spending all the money. You're making this mm -hmm. bet. And it sounds like from your point of view, from the Tot Squad, this worked. Yeah. If Bye Bye Baby would have gotten their stuff together, they probably could have seen it from a numbers perspective. And they, that sounds like what it is, is I need it on my spreadsheets. Yep. I need to be able to see this and say, hey, this is this is like financially. Well, I mean, isn't that the problem that all big companies have working with startups is like they can't envision it until it happens. But like the startups can't make it happen until they help. Right. It's just like a total catch 22 yeah. situation. 
Um, so I don't feel like we ever got the full fair shake uh, in the Bye Bye Babies before we basically just got to the point yeah. where we had to pull them. I mean, it was one of those calls where I got on the phone and I talked to my board and I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut them down. Uh, and I want to go pursue this Angie's List idea. And, uh, and so I got on the phone with Bye Bye Baby and I was like, we've decided we're going to have to we're gonna shut them down. And they said, well, that's good because we decided it's not working for us either. And I was like, well, I fired you first. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, who gets to fire who that's first right. that's funny. Well, I mean, it, it, it looked bad right it was like the less sales we had inside the stores the less I could staff them right and then they would yeah. sit there empty inside the store which like looked bad for bye bye and it looked bad for us and then like the less they're staffed the less sales there are you know it was just like a downward spiral so like yeah. ultimately you have to like make the hard decision which was like personally devastating for me I feel like I went through a full grieving process after that because I had been working on this bye-bye partnership for the better part of six years. Um, I mean, maybe, yeah, I don't know, probably like 2014 was our first pilot through 2019. Wow. And to finally get there and get them open and get them in the store and then have them fail like right at the finish line due to circumstances that are outside of my control, it, it was just really hard. And, and I think that, that was one of the moments as a founder when I realized a lot of my personal identity was wrapped up in my business and my business's success. Um, but, you know, I went through the, the rage and the anger and the shock and I went into the like the oh, yeah. sadness and depression, grieving and like eventually came around to acceptance and hope <laughs> and, and the ability to move on to my next business idea. The 12, the 12 steps, right? that, that makes sense. And now you're coming out the other side and you have this. So how did you go from, okay, the, the pilot uh, or I guess the relationship with Bye Bye Baby, that did not work, mainly uh, completely outside of your mm -hmm. control. You had... You had built a team. You'd scaled a team. You'd written down God knows how many pieces of documentation to figure out your mm -hmm. process. This is how to sell. This is how to talk about it. We can get into that in a minute. How do you go from, hey, this is not working, and let's say you, you get to fire Bye Bye Baby. Now we get into acquisition. Like, How did that shift happen to what it sounds like is a company that was not really on your radar? That's not a relationship that we've really heard about is in a completely different space. Yeah, I mean, I think when I started working on this idea of like selling car seat installation as an add-on with a car seat, um, I had started having some conversations with Amazon and Walmart about offering that service on their website. And then somebody said to me like, oh, you have a marketplace. And I was like, really? Because uh, I was like basically like matching somebody to a car seat technician in their local zip code whenever they would buy a service online on these big retail websites. Um, and so then when I started learning more and more about marketplaces, um, I was like, wow, this, there's like, I mean, Uber is a marketplace. There's like so many great marketplace businesses out there that have transformed industries. And I was like, beyond car seats, like if somebody's buying a breast pump, what if I could sell them lactation support? If somebody is buying a, a crib, can I sell them crib assembly? If they're buying a sleep sack, can I sell them a sleep expert? Um, there's just so many other ways that this could work. And maybe I could be a tech startup that would be like fundable. Because, but I mean, and I did raise $3 million in that original business. Um, so it's not like I raised nothing, but like I raised that from like 80 different angel investors. Like, I mean, I spent so much of my time and energy on selling the company, like selling equity to yeah, angel investors yeah. um, that I, I even wonder what could I have done in my company if it wasn't so hard to fundraise yeah. um, beyond the fact that only 2% of venture capital money goes to female founders um, and particularly female founders with concepts that target women consumers. I think it's like we've got like a triple win against very, us very um, trying to raise yeah. money. But so I... I didn't want to shut down the cleaning service completely because I was a new mom and my kid kept pooping in the car seat. And I was like, people want this. Um, and you know, I think we had done like 
two and a half million in sales or something like it was like we were starting to get the traction um yeah and it was like i didn't want it to go away um but that felt the only viable path forward to go pursue this marketplace concept and build a tech company was to shut it down and i didn't want to shut it down and then it occurred to me one night like what if i could sell it like yeah i just shut down all these bye bye baby stores but there's still a ton of customers there's still a ton of demand there's like there's still a business here underneath all of this um and so i had three offers for the company i did not use a banker um but the first two offers were for twenty thousand dollars which is like man i put three million dollars into this business and did two and a half million in sales and people were but we were like not profitable we were bleeding money we just shut down all these things like people were like i'll take it off your hands um god that was a slap in the face um and and ultimately i ended up selling to a strategic um so i mean i guess there's another instance of me doing sales is like i sold a company (laughs) so yeah uh, absolutely uh i i i'm like a big networker i mean as i think most sales people are and i had a lot of relationships with other folks in my industry and adjacent spaces and was able to find somebody where there was a really great strategic fit and like, obviously a lot of the deal was structured as earnouts and everything, but the business is continuing to grow and that company is doing very well overall. And I continue to advise and, and be involved in that business. So it's gonna be a great outcome. Like I think that we'll, well, maybe not a great outcome. Like I think we'll get out what we put in, um, but that was better than shutting it down and getting zero. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it continues yeah, to getting evolve. zero or getting 20 grand or something. Yeah, yeah and, and I mean, I think from a personal perspective as an entrepreneur, like being able to go to other investors now with my new company and say, hey, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've built and sold a company before. Like, I mean, even if I had sold it for 20,000, I might've spun it that way. <laughs> but I think yeah, that that has absolutely. a lot more value well, than like, right. oh, I started something and it totally failed and I shut it down. Right. Let's talk a little bit. I wanna, I wanna come yeah. back to this specific point, but I don't wanna jump too far ahead. Because you talked about how you have this entire team, you built it up, and you have a lot of moving pieces. You already have a lot of demand, as you mentioned. You have, you've built out a lot to be able to expand in the way that you did. What, what did your first couple of hires look like from salespeople, managers type people? Like, what did that, like, when you're starting to scale, like, how do you know, how did you figure out who to hire, how to hire, how did you make sure you were hiring the right person? Yeah, I mean, I think it was pretty apparent to me pretty quickly that I needed an operator, um, that that I was definitely like the, the shiny objects person. Like every idea is a great idea, every partnership is a great partnership, like I want all of them. Um, and so focusing and prioritizing and like hitting metrics and goals and like staying on the same project for a significant amount of time was like harder for me. Um, and so, uh, I was looking for kind of COO type of like VP of franchise development um, roles that could help with that focus and execution um, and really like keeping things uh, on the straight and narrow, I guess. Because I think I have, would have the tendency to give my team whiplash. Like, oh, you're, oh you're, we're going to buy my baby, buy my baby. Oh, but, but Nordstrom, but Nordstrom, yeah. you know, like I was, you know, I was just so yeah. excited about everything Jason, coming yeah. in. And so, um, I think that was really important for me. And then, yeah, we had like city managers cause we were gro- going by region um, as we were growing and, and identifying kind of the right mix of sales and customer support ability for those folks with operational and tactical. Um, those were hard people to find. Especially, I mean, like the salary, we weren't paying very well. So. Yeah. How did you, how do you figure out who's, 
because when you got you, you really got to have somebody who's buying into what you're doing. They got to think more from the vision and the growth perspective. You're, they're not coming in and saying, "Hey, thanks for my three hundred grand." Right. Like, "Hey, I got to pay market rate at these big companies." Like, how, how'd you figure out the people who are not just selling you, or who are not just saying, "Yes, I need a job," or whatever it is? Like, how'd you how'd you figure out who are the right fit? Yeah, I think um, I'm a big believer in. Uh, like finding references that they didn't give you. Um, so if I see that, yeah, talks, totally yeah. back channel on the references. Cause like, you know, if you call the references that they gave you, they're going to say nice things. And if they don't like that's obviously <laughs> they got to go. Um, yeah. but I think that you get a lot more truth about like why somebody left that job or why it wasn't a fit or, you know, was it really that the founder was actually crazy and this person was great and, you know, or whatever kind of the situation was. So usually I will try for key hires to do back channel references and see if I can find somebody who is at the company at the same time as them, who can maybe point me to somebody who is closer to them. Um, and I think that that has been really helpful. Um, and, and I also just think spending a lot of time on the job description, like what, because usually hiring at that stage is like, this is currently one of my 12 jobs. What right. pieces of this job can I peel off into a specific job description? And then how do I find a person that matches that? And I would say I like had a lot of flexibility in that, that if I found somebody great and maybe they took like job A and C, but not job B or you know what I mean? Like, or they were competent in some pieces of the job, but, but would surprisingly be interested in other parts of the job that was not in the job description. Like I would try to craft roles to people. Um, so I, I should also believe as a management philosophy that like people are happier at work if they're doing things that they're passionate about and excited about. And so if I can find ways for the people on my team to do like at least 80% of their job is the stuff that energizes them and like minimize the amount of time they spend on crap that they don't like, then like that's going to lead to more loyalty, happier, better culture. Like it, it just really perpetuates itself. So in that sense, like I think I'm flexible about creating the right job once I found somebody who I think is the right person. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, one of the things that we see is role clarity. I mean, when, when I, when I hear what you're saying is, is there's so much to do around, Hey, let's not just like go on indeed and, and pick, you know, the, the title that I, you know, think that it is and just copy it, it co copy whatever their bullets are and then repost it. I look at it and say, let's pause for a second and actually figure out what is this role that I need them to do. Mm -hmm. I get that we want them to do these other 15,000 things. And they will probably need to do some version of some additional right. activities. But, like, what are the top things that we need them to do in order for the company to be able to grow into scale? Mm -hmm. That's really important. Did, did, did you make some mistakes? Did you make some bad hires that... Uh... I, I mean, when people will ask me, like, what was your biggest mistake... It's almost always hiring decisions. <laughs> it's yeah. always wrong people. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember one specific instance where I hired a woman to help with marketing, um, and we were kind of going through a rebranding situation at the time, and she wanted a budget that was like 10x the budget that I had available to do it. And when I told her, like, that's not the budget. Like, we can do it. We can be scrappier. Like, we can do it within this budget. Because, like, from my perspective, the first time I had done branding was, like, one-tenth of that cost. Like, I had already 10x the budget. I wasn't going to 100x right. the budget. Um, right. And her reaction was to be like, well, then I'm going to burn this place down. And so, like, she went behind my back and was, like, poisoning the well with, like, five, eight, ten people on my team. I don't even know. My team was really big. I had a lot of hourly workers, right, all over the country. 
Um, yeah. But I remember pulling over on the side of the road and crying in my car and being like, I'm a good person. Like, what did I do to deserve this treatment? Um, and, and like feeling really bad about it. And then seeing the cancer that had like now spread within my organization. And I ended up having to replace like five or eight people. Like it was a lot of people that had to go after that incident. And so I feel like as an entrepreneur, there's a lot of advice that people give you that's like, you know, hire slow, fire fast. And I had heard that a hundred times, but until I learned it the hard way that I should have hired her more slowly and fired her more quickly and, and like really suffered the painful consequences of not following that advice. Like I was, that was not one that I could just like learn from other people. Like I had to really learn that myself. Um, and then I took it to heart. And so anytime I look back at like things I wasted money on, it was the wrong person. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I, you know, I have my own stories behind it, but it's, it's interesting how, how many times you can hear the same advice over and over and over again and your brain goes, yeah, no, I get it. I get it. I get it. But until it actually happens to you, do you like, yeah, and you're like, now I actually know what that advice. I really know what that means now. Um, unfortunately, I I always, is there a way and I, this may it's a little bit of a, a, a curve out of out of the way, but like, can you teach that? Like, is there a way for you now that you feel it to go back to someone who has never felt it and actually get it to them, in order to for them to go, I get it. I'm not going to make the mistake. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. But I think that now, having gone through that specific experience with the higher slow fire fast advice. Um, I am more apt to listen to those types of pieces of advice um, because I got burned on one of them. So I think maybe you don't have to have it on every single one. Like one really bad one one can like help you, you know, adapt to those pieces of advice faster the next time around. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I agree. What would you say is the best bet, maybe one top two best bets that you made on scaling revenue, on scaling up? Oh my gosh. I mean, for me, one of the best bets that I made was probably patience. Um, And I think, you know, that's hard if you've got investors who are like breathing down your neck saying like, you've got to hit these numbers this month. I mean, that's why startups are not public companies. (laughs) But, But when you're selling to Fortune 500 companies, they are slow. They are always going to be slower than you expect them to be. And the relationships are going to turn over. I mean, with Nordstrom, I remember we did multiple rounds of pilots that were really successful, great data. And then my key champion in the organization left to go get a job at Levi's. And then it was like, oh my gosh, it took like six months before they hired the new person. Then I had to go rebuild that relationship. And then that person said, well, now I want to do my own round of pilots. It's like, it's painful. And that's kind of true of people who work at Fortune 500 companies in general. They change roles every 18 months or so. And so like, if you're not done and like you're networking within the organization to get more contacts, like that can really slow you down. But I do think that like that patience paid off for me and went right. Like ultimately I did get to a point where Bye Bye Baby said, okay, we've gone really slow for four years and now we want to go really fast. Um, and that's what you're hoping for is like, you know, that if you can like turn it on, it's going to pop, it's going to be really big. I'm working on that right now in my business. Um, we're working on launching baby services as part of the baby registry experience so that when you are. Um, creating your baby registry and saying, I need a stroller and I need a car seat. You can say, I want a lactation consultant and a night nanny and a prenatal massage and all these things. And it's like, we're really close to launching with, with two of the biggest retailers in the world. And it's like, once they put us on their registry checklist, I think it's going to go huge. 
right? So it's like slow, 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 slow. And then you hope that when it gets turned on, their reach is so large that it's going to go really big, really fast. So I think patience was really key, even though I was getting pressure from a lot of people that I needed to be pivoting or doing something else. But like sometimes for these really big deals, you do have to wait. What would you, um, what would you advise do differently? What would you do differently? Well, I, I think like it, 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 to follow along with this patience thing, it's like for me, the like little mantra in my head was always like, I just got to stay alive long enough to close this deal. Um, I'm, I'm sure so many people, so many founders have had that. Like if I can just close this deal, like I just got to like conserve my cash long enough. I got to like stretch each one of these dollars until this deal hits because when the deal hits, it's going to be great. And um, I, I think what I realized is that some of these sales processes can be so slow that you've got to pursue other side projects in the meantime, right? You can't just sit around and twiddle your thumbs while you're being patient. Um, yeah. And so, you know, well, you spend it having with 80 conversations with investors. Well, oh yeah, exactly. Spent, you're do you're either trying to raise the money or you're trying to get the revenue. It's like got to come from somewhere. Um, and yeah. so, and in this economy right now, right, it's like everybody's trying to conserve cash and reduce their team's hours or lay people off or, you know, it's, it's a hard time. Um, to be out there needing to get capital in. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I just think you've got to be, you got to stay alive. You've got to be really smart with your cash. Cash is, uh, cash is king, as they say. Mm -hmm. And if you, uh, if you don't spend it wisely, it, uh, it can really hurt you. And, and being able to play in the right world, words, especially when you're, when your sales channel is somebody else's model, which is, which can be really, really challenging. Mm -hmm. Want to get to a couple of last minute, uh, last minute things. When you look at some of the best sales advice that you've ever gotten, and I know that uh, I am not included in that. Um, what what would you say that you would recommend, or what would you advise to founders who are listening? Um, you know, I think that uh, Alex, you've given me some great sales advice over the last couple of years. Um, I think that one piece of advice that I didn't take early enough was really about implementing a CRM. Um, and just getting more organized with all of my leads and like creating sales dashboards and metrics around that. Like, I think you were the first person who really told me, it was like, yeah, like if, if you haven't heard from them in 60 days, like move them out. They're like no longer a warm lead. Like you can re-enter them. You can make them warm again if they come back to the table. Um, and so I think kind of putting metrics and, and data and structure around the sales process, whereas it had been very, I don't want to say it wasn't proactive, but, but a bit reactive or just like, who did I run into and who, who did I like get networked with and then have these leads coming in. Um, but, but I would say that the, you know, you did a big walkthrough for me on HubSpot and I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. I have to have it. And I went to my board and I was like, we're going to implement HubSpot. And my board was like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. HubSpot is a Ferrari and you need a tricycle. <laughs> Right. <laughs> like, we gotta, like let, let's find like the stage appropriate thing. Right. And again, there's part of this where it's like I was coming out of a company that was like at a decent size and then going back to being an early stage startup again when I started my second business. Um, right. But, you know, spreadsheets weren't cutting it and I needed to move into something more formal. So we ended up actually using Monday.com um, is how we're managing our sales CRM. And it's really flexible and it's got a lot of great stuff. But like I still have my eyes set yeah. on HubSpot one day, Alex. <laughs> Let me know. I'm happy happy to help you with that. This is uh, this has been fantastic, Jen. Thank you so much. Got a got a couple of last minute questions, and then uh, and then we can wrap up. Um, we'll have to have you on. I know that we did not get to a ton of things. I want to get to the whole story of where Tot Squad is at now, and every all the all the success that you're about to have. I'm super excited. 
Um, last couple of questions. What would you say is a favorite book or resource, anything that you recommend to founders uh, that are just at the kind of the moving out of product market fit into that scale stage? trying to figure out what's the best way to scale their business. Um, yeah, there's a great book I'm reading right now called The Cold Start Problem, um, which is by Andrew Chen, who's a partner at A16Z. Um, and it's for anybody who is particularly in marketplaces, um, and you're kind of trying to, like what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to like hack demand and supply at the same time, and how do you um, how do you fake it till you make it? Not in the Elizabeth Holmes version of that terminology. I'm like very careful about that now. Um, yeah. But yeah. but how do you overcome some of those challenges um, as you're trying to get your business off the ground? That's a good one. That is a good one. Uh, how does the audience get more of more more of you? Uh, well, uh, on social media, everywhere else, we're at Tot Squad. T O T S Q U A D. Um, and yeah, we do Instagram, LinkedIn, all those different places and always totspot.com. And if you're creating a baby registry at Walmart, uh, you can add our services right there, buy them um, at Walmart. And and I would, yeah, I would say there's uh, some other big names coming up in 2023 too. Highly recommend checking out Tot Squad if you are a parent. Any last remaining things, wisdom, tidbits that uh, you can part ways with the audience? Oh my gosh, um, that feels like a really big thing. I don't know. Just, uh, just keep at it. Like you know, it's it's been like a hard couple of years out there to be an entrepreneur in a pandemic and fundraising climates that have just seemed to go from like one polar extreme to the other. Hiring climates where it's like when COVID first hit, we're like, woohoo, this is an employer's market. Like we're going to be able to get some great talent. And then it was like somehow went the complete opposite direction where it was like we couldn't hire anybody. Everybody was so expensive. Um, and now it's like recession is coming and it's an employer market again. So, uh, you know, it's yep. it's a crazy, crazy time out there. But like take care of yourself, take care of your mental health and, and hang in there. Keep going. Thank you so much, Jen. You'll have to come back and do it uh, Do it again. I can't wait to see how the partnership with Walmart and all these other ones go. Thank you. We'll have to have you back on. Thank you. See ya. Bye. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.